So, uh, good morning. Uh, my name is uh, Paddy. This is the first time that I've been to this service. Oh, sorry, this community. <laughs> Get it right. And, and so, I guess I'm new in that sense. So, um, thanks, Mark, for welcoming me. Um, so, today is Remembrance Sunday. Uh, and I, I, this uh, talk is going to uh, touch on some quite serious stories. Because um, it's a serious... Uh, uh, day today, Remembrance Sunday, when we look back on the catastrophic conflicts of the past, many of which are shaping this country today, even though it's decades later. And we remember and recognize the deaths of so many humans, all made in the image of God, uh, fighting as soldiers or civilians, and we reflect on the devastating effects of war on countries in the past and today. So this uh, talk is um, uh, following in our series at the moment, Culture of Hope, uh, and we're going to explore that today. Uh, And first of all, that uh, is uh, a town in the... in. Bosnia Herzegovina, and it's known as uh, Srebrenica. And I don't know if you uh, remember what happened in the uh, early to mid 90s. Uh, so it was part of the uh, former country of Yugoslavia, and it, it fell apart in a terrible, horrifying civil war. And you might remember some of the TV pictures, you might remember. Uh, United Nations, our country and other countries wondering what to do about it. Um, and <clears throat> at the time, there was, uh, as the war took hold in, in Bosnia, um, there was people fleeing from the conflict as the Bosnian Serbs uh, had uh, risen up and were conquering parts of the country. And um, Srebrenica was near the Serbia and is near the Serbian border. Uh, and a UN general came to uh, Srebrenica uh, to see what was happening and see the sort of refugees from war going there. And as he was leaving, they didn't want him to leave. <laughs> They're saying, please stay, because they were so fearful and frightened about what would happen. Uh, and this, this general uh, sort of unilaterally declared that Srebrenica would be under the protection of the United Nations. Um, he hadn't had permission to say that. Uh, and the United Nations, as a consequence, declared various safe havens throughout Bosnia, Srebrenica being one of them, and deployed peacekeepers. Uh, whilst he was there, <laughs> Srebrenica was surrounded by um, Bosnian Serb army, artillery and soldiers. And in July 1995, they came into uh, Srebrenica uh, the Dutch peacekeeping forces effectively had to surrender um, against tanks and machine guns. And the Bosnian Serb forces uh, said to the um, predominantly Muslim population that if the males lay down their guns and surrendered, it'd be all right. And, and so they did do that. Um, and then commenced... A, terrible massacre which is um, 
the worst genocide on European soil since the Second World War. And over 8,000 males of 12 and up were rounded up and massacred in a couple of days and over 25,000 women, children and elderly people were forced to leave. And so this picture of Srebrenica, all those white, I guess, memorial plaques are to the thousands that died that day. And when I was at uh, university, um, I went to Lancaster University, I uh, studied some of the um, case reports uh, from Srebrenica that happened years later when there was war crimes tribunals about it. And there was this one case about this young man who, who lived in Srebrenica at the time. And, and some of his neighbours were Bosnian Muslims. So he wasn't a soldier. Uh, he, uh, he was from, I guess you say, a normal, stable family. Um, and when the town fell in July 1995, so he was a Bosnian Serb by origin, he went on this um, killing spree and, and killed his Muslim neighbours. And he's someone he lived there all his life and known all these people. When I read this story at university, I was, I was quite shocked. And I think at the time, I had quite an optimistic view of uh, humanity. And I'd like, you know, I'd like to think that humans are a, a noble <laughs> creature, that we can live in a good way, and we can flourish with creativity. But I you know, read stories like that, and, and I think there's like a darkness in all of us. And it, it fills me with fear that perhaps my outlook is wrong. You know, is, is there hope? Are, you know, are we a noble creature? So I know this is quite um, sobering stuff. So we're looking at hope this morning, and I'm looking at, I suppose, through that story and that lens. For us as a people, as humans, what, is, what does hope mean in that sort of visceral sense? And so hope, it's a really uh, important thing to us, the um, expectation uh, and excitement, hopefulness. And it's psychological research that shows that a lack of hope in your life can eventually lead to severe mental health issues, um, and it can actually, um, you can die earlier than you would do if you have a kind of hopeless life. And I wonder, you know, that word hope, what comes to your mind? Um, what do you think of? And I, I, I did find um, a quote, because politicians, I know, they use this word hope quite a lot, I've noticed. And so this is uh, a quote from Barack Obama when he was running for president of the US in 2008. And so you see there that his uh, idea of hope is like, strive to make a better world. Have hope that we can make a better world. That's quite a good thing if you're a politician, to get people to vote for you. you, can't, you vote for me and we can make a better world together. Um, and so but hope is very much, a, it's not just for America, this idea of creating a better society. You might know that after the Second World War, there was this, um, we'd survived as a, a country and we wanted to make it better. So institutions like the NHS were born, this kind of hopefulness of creating a better society. National parks were created. Even the, the planning system, <laughs> as our church is going through, was created as well. Uh, so hope in our culture is often looking to try and create a better society. And hope's also a very personal 
thing as well. Hope that our own situations and our lives can improve if life is difficult. Um, I don't know if you know that if you watched the um, like any of the cricket over the the summer, and and, and you know hope hope in sport is quite interesting too. Uh, and England were playing uh, New Zealand. It was really tight, and I was watching it, thinking, I just hope England can win because <laughs> it will be great. It will be just so great. So there's very in sporting sense, it's a very immediate thing. Hope in your sports team. You might have uh, children, and you might be hoping that they will. Um, well, I'm sure you do. They'll they'll grow up uh, to find their place in society, um, to find their their identity in in Christ. Um, but when all said and done, I come back to that young man in Srebrenica. Do we have reason to be hopeful in ourselves? And what does God have to say about all this? So, as I said, hope is, is very important psychologically. Uh, and, and, and so not surprisingly, the Bible has a lot to say about hope. Uh, and the Bible is very gritty and it's very real. And it recognizes the human condition. The words, uh, the hope in Hebrew, the, the word that we get as hope in our Bibles, the Hebrew word is, um, is two sort of uh, forms of it, about waiting and tense anticipation. So that's the sort of, it's almost like a, a rope that you're stretching under tension. So that's the sort of Hebrew idea that we get translated into hope in the Old Testament. So the reading today is from Isaiah, Isaiah 43. Beautiful words. And there's a, a context to them that we'll just briefly explore. So I really love ancient maps. So we've got one here. Um, uh, and it's sort of, well, yeah, by about 500-ish BC. And so Isaiah, he was around at about 740, 700 BC. And um, the Jewish nation split at that time. And so there's Israel to the north and, and Judah to the south. And, and north of uh, Israel, so um, kind of up towards uh, Nineveh, there was other nations that were quite threatening. Uh, one was the Assyrians, uh, and they had this uh, fearsome military, and they were sort of around 700 to 600-ish, and they were constantly threatening the north of Israel, uh, and they were a brutal, brutal army. And you might know of... Jonah, he went off to Nineveh at that time. So that, they were there. He went off to their, his enemies. Uh, and then the Assyrians basically, they eventually fell, uh, surprisingly, uh, in historical terms. And the Babylonians uh, arose. And they came whoosh, sweeping through. Um, and they uh, swept through uh, Israel, which had already fallen to the Assyrians, uh, to Jerusalem, where they uh, laid siege to it. And it fell in 586 B.C., and at the time it fell, this is where chapter 43 is happening. So that's the context of what's going on. There's been a war and threats, uh, countries falling. And, and this first part of Isaiah is talking about, to the, it's theologically explaining why this is happening. Um, in that the Jewish people are under God's judgment. But onwards, um, chapter 43 and onwards, is a different um, uh, focus in Isaiah. So I can imagine, just put yourselves into the lives of those uh, Jewish people. The, the threat of war, 
the stories of these brutal empires, you'll hear about it as they come through, attacking villages. Um, you know, you're, if you're a wife, your husband, and your sons who go off to the fighting and die, the rulers at the time in Israel and Judah were quite weak, not very effective, not really inspiring confidence. And God's prophets were saying, this is, this is judgment coming. You know, we are going to be sent into exile. We are going to fall. So I'm sure that the fear at the time was very visceral and, and all-consuming. All and when Jerusalem fell, the people were taken into exile, taken away from their jobs and their lives, their neighborhoods, to face an uncertain future. And another prophet at the time, Ezekiel, he had a vision at that time that the temple where God resided and lived with his people, that God's presence just lifted up and, and left. So this, this shattering blow to the people that God had seemed to abandon them. And was God weak compared to the Babylonian gods? And so life can be a bit like that for us. You know, thankfully, we're not in a generation where we're facing uh, a sort of a threat to our country the way the um, uh, Jews did. But you know, we can have these fears too of, of um, maybe fears of people who are not like us. Um, we can have uncertainties in our lives. We can lose our jobs. We can get ill. Uh, we can fear failure. I, I used to be a leader of Rendezvous, um, and which is a um, teenage sort of youth group that church runs. And I remember this astonishing thing of fear becoming a more and more integral part of young people. Uh, I don't know how it's happened, but a, a fear has grown in, in their lives. And I remember one of the rendezvous people, who's really, she was stressed, uh, saying to her, what, what, why are you worried? And she was saying, well, I, I, I need to get the right exam results. I need to get the right exam results. And, and if I don't, I'd have failed as a person and messed my whole life up. And I said, do you really believe that, that your life is going to be defined by this moment? And she did. Um, so this fear, this, this was grabbing her. Sort of in a way crushing her, who she was. Maybe we're lonely in life. We might even, we might even doubt God. I'm sure, like the Jews did, and wonder if he is effective. So as the Jews trudged off into exile, the book of Isaiah was looked at again. And they were, they read the words of chapter 43. So you might want to have it open in front of you. So the first thing, chapter 43, is that this is, God is gonna do the thing he's gonna do, which he talks about in 43. And this is grace in action. The Jewish people had been under judgment and defeated. There was nothing they could do about this. They couldn't defeat the Babylonians, but God said that he would come and rescue and restore them God is doing this, going to do this thing. 
it also talks about in this passage that he will be with them in the difficult times ahead. Even when there's the metaphor of language, a uh, metaphor of walking through fire, uh, through water, conjuring up ideas of the exile, Moses passing through the um, Red Sea. And so you, it's, so God will be with them when times are difficult. God identifies to them, he talks about his character to them. He says he will be their saviour. He also talks about how he will restore them to their homeland as they've been taken away. He also goes on to say that he will be their one true God. The concern of how is God weak compared to the Babylonian gods, God answers, says he is the one true God and their God. And then he talks about in this passage that God says, I will pay any price to ransom my own. The image of giving up nations and countries. Pay any price to ransom my own. So that is what they heard as they were going away to exile, those words. And it wasn't necessarily about that they therefore they should be optimistic. It wasn't even necessarily about that they should look at their situation and think it's fine. Because it wasn't fine. It was about putting their confidence in God. So this is biblical hope. It's not hope in ourselves. It's not hope that we can make a better society, albeit those things are important. And of course we should work to do that in this country. It's not about seeing our situation as better than it is. It's not being an extrovert about things. It's not about certain personality types. It's about putting our hope in God, that God will see his promises through, will not abandon his people, not abandon us. And despite all the Jews' flaws and failings at the time, and ours, God, he identifies as saviour and will give anything to ransom them and us. So these are words of comfort Words of comfort to the Jews as they were taken away, sustaining them into exile. So hope is about putting faith in God, in his character and promises to make all things right. And he's committed to his people and committed to us. So as the story goes on, the Babylonian Empire eventually ended and the Persians took over under a leader called Cyrus. And that's the sort of uh, Persian empire there. And so the Jews returned to their homeland. Chapter 43, the promises were starting to happen. They rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, as we read about in Nehemiah. But things are still not quite right. They were still ruled by foreign powers. Alexander the Great, you might have heard of. Later on, the Romans... So the hope of the people being established again as an independent nation and a kingdom under God has still not been established. And the Old Testament talked about God returning in person to his people to make all things right. They still had this tense, tense anticipation, this hope. 
They were living it. So now we come on to Galilee in the early part of the first century where a young itinerant man was going about the place. And what did he say to the Jews who still felt as if they were in exile? When would the kingdom come? And he said, Proclaim the good news of God. And Jesus said, The time has come. The kingdom of God comes near. Repent and believe the good news. That word good news, euangelion, announcement of a kingdom. Chapter 43, happening again in a deeper way. Jesus was announcing that God was becoming king. The kingdom was coming and God was putting things right. However, the way God works was unexpected. As Jesus continued in his ministry and life, his followers came to see he was the Messiah. But God's kingdom was unlike any human kingdom. And Jesus modeled a different way of being human. The hope spoken about in the Old Testament, hope put in God and God's character, was redefined on Jesus and is redefined on Jesus. He incarnated a living hope. People came to him and were healed, redeemed, had their sins forgiven and were loved dearly. He was popular with the ordinary folk. We know what happens as the story goes on in Jesus' life. He confronted the power structures of his day, the Jewish leaders and eventually the might of the Roman Empire and deeper, the dark powers behind these human institutions. And Jesus was crucified and seemingly a hope was dashed. But we're here today in this magnificent building because the story didn't end then. Jesus was resurrected. The hope placed in him by his disciples and followers could not be overcome. On that day in the garden, on the first day of the week, new creation started. The great promise in the Bible that God would one day make all things new had started in Jesus. And the message of Jesus The world's true king spread throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. It crosses ethnic divides. It redefines what it is to be a man and a woman and a child in God's kingdom. It turns social hierarchies upside down. New communities arose radically different to the cultures around them. They became a living hope, living as new humans They cared for the poor and the widows. They loved and stuck by one another, even when persecuted. But the kingdom of Jesus has not been fully established. The waiting and tense anticipation continues. So where does that leave us? I started with one story about this young man in Srebrenica and the terrible acts he carried out. I'll move on to one last story. So this individual, 
I'll try and pronounce his name properly, is a German chap who's died now, and his name is Frederick von Boldeschwing, <laughs> um, the younger. So he was a Christian pastor, uh, theologian in, in Germany, and his father set up something known as the um, Bethel Community, which some of you may have heard of. It's sort of around the world now. And originally in the 18th century, it was established to help epileptic young girls who came to this community and were cared for and looked after and given a, a life. And so his father set this community up, and his father died in 1910, and his son uh, took over running it in Germany. <laughs> and it grew as a community, and hospitals developed there, and schools, and factories. They even had a sort of Bible college. And you might have heard of a chap called Dietrich Bonhoeffer visited, uh, and he talked about it as a, a fairy tale land of grace. And as it went on into the 1930s, the Nazis rose to power. And Frederick was appalled at, at what they stood for. The people who he helped, the uh, mentally ill, the uh, outsiders, the people who didn't fit easily with society, the Nazi worldview of a, a pure race had no place for people like that, uh, uh, who were, and they were systematically mercy-killed by the Nazis. And Frederick and his staff resisted the Nazis who, who visited him, who asked him to hand over his patients. I'm sure it was a stressful and pressure time. And it wasn't just Frederick, it was his staff too. And I've got a quote that Frederick said at the time to the Nazi politicians up there. So this is what hope in Jesus does. It messes with us. It changes us. It's not about going to heaven when you die. It's gritty. It's real. It's incarnating into the now, whilst looking in tense anticipation to the new heavens and the new earth. We can put our hope in Jesus when our life feels upside down, when we feel afraid, when things are difficult. We can persevere in this tense anticipation. We can incarnate hope as new humans by placing our hope in the character and the promises of Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection. The Holy Spirit is available to all of us to challenge us, to break down our divides, to embolden us to love and minister to each other and out into the world as God looks to incarnate hope throughout the world. As you know, our country is bitter. It's divided politically. And there is fear, as I said, in our young people. I think I read something. One in four adults experiences mental health depression clinically at any one time. We can be disappointed in our representatives. There's a fear of climate change. Um, my daughter was saying how she was afraid for the future. Maybe it's too late with climate change. 
That's the fear people have. But biblical hope speaks into this, a new way of being human, of living with this tense anticipation of God breaking into this world as a foretaste of the new heavens and new earth to come. The hope in the Bible is eternal. It's one of the things that will be in the world to come. It will be a fully realized reality. And so for us now, we get to live in that hope, like Frederick, under a new king. So the answer to my fear of Srebrenica is, is yes, humans do have darkness in them. But Jesus, by his grace, believes in us, wants to mess with us, wants us to incarnate hope into our lives and out into the world. So I'll just um, pray. Lord God, thank you that uh, when uh, life is uh, difficult and we're fearful, that we can put our hope in your character. Thank you that in Isaiah you talked about gathering back and how you will give anything to ransom us, that you are our saviour. Thank you, Lord, that even where we might not have hope in ourselves, you have hope in us. Thank you, Lord, for incarnating hope today. It's not an otherworldly thing. It's a gritty, it's a now, it's a real. Thank you for people like Frederick in the past who modelled a different way of being human even under um, terrible leadership. He lived under a you, Jesus, our King. So Father's Day, Remembrance Sunday, as we remember all the stuff in the past, help us to, yes, have hope for the future, but more place our hope in you, our Saviour and our King. Amen.